The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Today's reading comes, uh, comes from page 516 uh, in the Bibles under your seats if you'd like to follow along. It's from the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. The coming king of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This has been God's word. As we were setting up this morning, James and I were talking a little bit about uh, parenting. And so I've, uh, between the season of life that I find my friends in, having babies, and uh, the season of life that my wife and I are in, uh, pregnant with our first child, I'm thinking about parenting a lot. And uh, it, I'm becoming more and more convinced that children are one of the uh, main means in which God sanctifies us. And so probably some parents nodding some heads on that. Um, and uh, so one of the reasons I say that is Becca, she works at a school, and she was telling me a story just the other day about kindergarten class. And kids just say the darndest things, don't they? So uh, they were talking about, in this kindergarten class, they were talking about elephants and how elephants consume X number of gallons of water every day just to function. And so a little kid raises his hand. He says, so does that mean that elephants get drunk because they drink so much water? And another little kid chimes in and says, no, no, elephants, elephants don't drink alcohol. And then this little kid on the other side of the classroom chimes in. He said, well, elephants might not drink alcohol, but my mommy and daddy sure do. <laughs> so beware if you have kids, right? Who knows what my kid's going to tell about me. But, uh, it, and another reason I, I feel sort of prepared for um, parenting as much as I guess you can is it, by happenstance between work and other things, I just, I have been functioning on a low level of sleep. And I just have seen since college, my sleep just deplete slowly but surely down to like a bare minimum. I feel like I'm running on fumes. And so I was up late uh, almost every night this week and studying and thinking and praying and other things. And so one of the stories I ran across uh, as I was up was about a guy named Horatio Spafford. Has anybody ever heard of Horatio Spafford? Well, thank you, Kathy. So I hadn't until this week. So Horatio Spafford was a high-powered attorney in Chicago in the mid to late 1800s. And so the setting is 1871, and there was a, a, the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. And it burned a significant portion of the whole city. Chicago was a very important city in uh, the American economy at that point in time. And so Horatio Spafford was a very successful lawyer there, and he had a large family. And so he had invested his own personal wealth back into real estate in downtown Chicago because it was so thriving. And then the Great Fire of 1871 destroyed most of Chicago and all of his personal wealth. 
And so two years later, he felt like his family, after sort of what they've gone through, needed a vacation. And so Horatio Spafford was friends with a popular evangelist named Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, some of you may know. And so Dwight Moody was preaching over in England, and so Horatio Spafford said, I want to send my family, my four girls and my wife, over to England. I have some work to attend here in Chicago. I'll be over soon. So he sends his daughters, his four daughters, and his wife over on a ship. And on their way over, another ship collides, and uh, all four of his daughters drown in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Under 12, four daughters. His wife is the only one of his family that makes it across. She sends a telegram, and it starts with the words, saved, alone. And so Horatio Spafford immediately gets on a ship and starts making his way across the Atlantic Ocean. And on his trek across, he writes a hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And so you sort of imagine as he's passing the area in which his four daughters have just drowned. He says, those sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So you can sort of imagine what it must have been like uh, as a parent in here, as a soon-to-be parent, what it would be like to ride across the Atlantic Ocean and see those things. And so um, out of that song, the phrase that kept sticking with me uh, throughout the week was, whatever my lot. Oh, so a lot is what, what your um, assignment or your um, duty in life would be. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what the lot of Christ was. So what was the purpose or the lot of Jesus Christ's life? And we see that no more clearly than in the final week of his earthly ministry. We see highlighted throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that the the lot of Christ was determined before the foundations of the world. First Peter talks about it. Revelation talks about it. It says that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. So I just want to sit on that. We don't have time to talk about what that means theologically or what the implications of that are, but think about that. Before the world was formed, it was already Christ's duty or his lot to die for his people. Isaiah 53 paints it as a a suffering servant, a king coming down and suffering for his people. And so scripture highlights from beginning to end what Christ would do for us. And so we see very clearly as the passage we just read in Luke, as he's marching in to Jerusalem on the final week of his life, uh, we're gonna be able to highlight a couple things about what we may gather or learn from the way that Christ conducted and the things that he said in those final days. Um, If it's okay with you guys, I'd like to pray and uh, really ask for God's help this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning we have life and breath, Lord, that we can laugh together, that we can sing loudly together. Just confess that uh, I'm struggling 
this morning to believe that all of my worth and identity is in you. I'm struggling to believe that the price that you paid on the cross was good enough. Would you help me and the others in here, your beloved children, to believe those truths deeply? <clears throat> Would you help us to, to take something from your scripture and to be able to hold on tightly to it this week? We cannot do it without your help this morning. We ask for these mercies from your son and from your throne. In Christ's name, amen. So, in redemptive history, or the, the church history, per se, today is known as Palm Sunday. Many of you know that. Palm Sunday is a tradition that goes back to Christ entering Jerusalem. And uh, if, if we notice, uh, Palm Sunday is the Sunday before the Friday. So five days from today, historically, a little less than 2,000 years ago, Christ is going to be murdered in Jerusalem. And so it's the, the culmination of his entire uh, ministry, his entire work, and his entire life here packed in one week. It's a, it's a great snapshot of, of who Christ was and what he came to do. And so the, the journey really starts, I, I just want to set the stage kind of, the journey started for Christ on the, the road to Jerusalem, so to speak, about eight months before. So historically speaking, best we know, uh, it would have been about A.D. 30 in April. So the spring of A.D. 30 is when Christ would have been marching into Jerusalem. But the, the, the sort of trek to Jerusalem started back in September, started in the fall. And we see that in Luke 9. Some of you may be familiar with the scripture. It says that the Lord set his face towards Jerusalem. And so it was in September of A.D. 29 that Christ says, now is time. Now it's time to begin what I came for. And so he was preaching, because keep in mind, uh, the, the area of Judea, Samaria, uh, Jerusalem was a, a rather large area, and it wasn't, they, they weren't riding on interstates in between locations. I mean, it was all by foot, and it was rugged terrain. So he was up in Capernaum back in September, which would have been about the same distance between here and Fayetteville. So he, he would have been in, in Fayetteville area, marching down towards Jerusalem, finishing uh, his miracles, his preaching. And everywhere he went, there was large gatherings of people that were following him. And so he goes through and raises Lazarus from the dead and then begins to turn to Jericho. So Jericho would have been uh, to the east of Jerusalem. Maybe referred to Jerusalem as a city on a hill. It's because it literally is uh, about a half a mile above sea level. And so the, you can imagine Jericho is down below sea level. And so after Christ and his disciples make their turn from Jericho, where uh, the story of Zacchaeus happened, Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector uh, that was hated by almost every Jewish member of the city of Jericho because he robbed the people. And so God saves, Jer uh, God saves Zacchaeus in Jericho and begins marching up what's called the Roman road. And so he makes that turn and starts heading up. It would have been a very difficult trek. It was mostly uphill. And here we are now in the spring. Uh, typical temperature, 60 degrees or so in Jerusalem. So it feels a lot like spring might feel here, except for today. Um, and 
That's sort of the temperature or the gauge of where we are in, uh, in the triumphal entry. So Jesus, last night, so Saturday night, would have spent time with Lazarus and Martha and Mary again. So the, the man, his friend that he just raised from the dead, he's going back and visiting with. And Bethany, which is where they were, was about two miles outside the city. And so Jesus starts the march in. And we see it. it people start gathering. And this, this, is not a, this is not an official Jewish gathering, but it would have been Passover. So there, there's going to be roughly two million Jews in the city of Jerusalem at this point in time, which is an astronomical number. And so there's a, a large population of people, and, and, and folks start catching wind. They said, did you hear about what Jesus did? Did you hear who's coming in? And so they start making their way over near the Roman road where Christ is coming in on a donkey. And he's got his disciples with him, and people start singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. They start laying down cloaks and palm trees, which would have been a sign of, of respect. It would have been a sign of reverence. But uh, the, the important thing to remember about the, the triumphal entry is, ironically enough, Jerusalem is about five miles from Bethlehem. So Jesus would have been about five miles away from his birthplace. wonder what it must have been like walking into a city to your death. I mean, I, I get nervous sometimes going to doctor's appointments or dentist appointments. What would it have been like to know what was about to happen? To be walking up that road knowing what awaited you. Well, this scene that we see in all four Gospels, but that Randy read from Luke earlier, it is something that was first predicted or prophesied about at the beginning of Genesis. It was written down prophecy 1,500 years prior to it actually happening. And specifically speaking about the fact that he would ride a donkey into Jerusalem was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. So if you guys have your Bibles, you should turn with me. I just want to look briefly at Zechariah 9.9. 9. If you don't have Bibles, I think there's some scattered underneath. I encourage you to turn there. Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah is prophesying to the people at this point. It's hard without understanding the context of Zechariah, but the Jewish people are a battered people. I mean, they have been enslaved, they have been overtaken, they have been bought and traded and sold. They, they have a very, very checkered past. And so Zechariah uh, is the means by which God uses at this point in time, but throughout the Old Testament, God often speaks through prophets and writings to encourage his people because they're losing heart. You know, you've promised us this Messiah that would come and rescue us from all of our destruction, all of our uh, slavery, 
all of our sin and degradation, and where is he? And so God often encourages his people through prophets. And so what he's doing here is encouraging the the Jewish people of Zechariah's day, saying, listen, the king that's coming is going to be righteous or just. The, The rule that you've seen by Darius and Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, those are unjust rulers. But a king is coming who will rule justly. A king is coming who embodies salvation, meaning he has saving power in and of himself. You don't have to bow down to idols. You don't have to sacrifice a lamb or a goat once a year anymore. There's one king who's coming who will finish it all. There's a king who's coming who, uh, as Jonathan Edwards says, he embodies the characteristics or the qualities of a lion and a lamb. He's powerful and strong and will devour his enemies. But at the same time, he is gentle and meek and lowly and soft and approachable. And the final part of Zechariah 9.9's prophecy is that he'll be riding a donkey. A donkey would have been a a sign of peace at the time because uh, prior to Solomon, King Solomon, the the typical means of transportation were donkeys, especially for uh, royalty. But after Solomon, they really introduced war horses. And so Solomon had like a stable of like 30,000 horses. And post-Solomon, royalty would have ridden on a horse. And so there's this kind of contrast there that, that Christ, who's supposed to be the king, he's supposed to be the Messiah, he's supposed to be royalty, he's coming on a donkey. What's more important is as the the Jewish people would have been vaguely familiar. So take yourself back to the triumphal entry. They're standing on Roman road and they see who they assume to be the king coming in. They would have been vaguely familiar with all of the prophecies proclaiming the king was coming. So you could imagine the anticipation, the hope, the excitement. They believe that Jesus was riding into Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman government. His own disciples believe this to take over, to establish a kingdom, a rule, and to be just and fair and to favor his people, that they would be his people and he would be their God and their king. And he was coming to do that today. Palm Sunday, A.D. 30. And as we, we will find out, they were sorely mistaken. That is not why Christ came. At least not that time. And so you could imagine the misconceptions they they felt, the the betrayal or even the uncertainty that Jesus might not be who he said he was. And so we see a, a type of people in here that the very ones singing Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, God save us, are the ones that were yelling four or five days later, crucify him. They immediately moved from all in to all out. And we even see Peter Later on in this week, we call it Holy Week, we see Peter who who walked with Christ. He was one of his best friends. Immediately doubting that Christ was who he said he was and he denies him. When faced with the decision of, do you want to bet your life that Jesus really is the king? Peter says no. But there were some who didn't struggle with faith, like Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was encouraging the disciples She was a prostitute that was very, very well known in uh, Jerusalem. 
And she was encouraging the disciples to believe that Christ was who he said he was. And so what we have here is in Zechariah 9, verse 9 points to his first coming. Zechariah 9, verse 10 points to his second coming. Paul in the book of Colossians says this. How many of you guys have been to Colorado? Anybody? Anybody been to Colorado or uh, North Carolina? The mountains aren't the same, but the, the idea is this. And this is an analogy I heard. It makes sense. If, if you look at a mountain range from a certain perspective, all the mountains look side by side, don't they? They look right next to each other. There could be hundreds of miles between the two mountaintops. There could be cities between the mountaintops. There could be valleys, rivers, a number of different things. But when we look at it from our vantage point, it just looks like two mountaintops right next to each other. The Jewish people of this day would have viewed Christ's first and second coming the same way. They don't see the gap between the fact that he's coming in verse 9 on a donkey, righteous, having salvation. And then we see in verse 10, look there with me. It says, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the church age. The difference between Christ's first coming and his second coming is where you and I live, in the church. But the reader here in Zechariah and the, the Jewish people at the triumphal entry wouldn't have been able to see the difference. It, Paul says it was a mystery to them what Christ meant by that. And so they had the disadvantage of waiting on Christ's first coming. We have the advantage of looking back on Christ's first coming and looking forward to his second coming. And that's what verse 10 shows us. So let's talk about what verse 10 says. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This paints a picture of the kingdom to come, of our future hope as Christians with Christ. Second Samuel says that, that his rule, that the Messiah's rule will be a continual one. It'll be a perpetual rule. There are no re-elections. We will never re-elect Christ to his, his rightful throne. That his, his rule will be complete and entire. It will be all-encompassing. Psalms 2 says that he, he rules from the holy hill. And it paints this picture in Scripture, throughout all of Scripture, that the future physical kingdom that Christ will establish will be one that you and I feel complete peace, joy, fulfillment, satisfaction. It will be a, a totally need-meeting, all-breathing environment. We will want for nothing. But that kingdom isn't here yet. I don't think any of us have to look very far to know that that hasn't happened yet. That the, the world that we live in doesn't appear to be what's painted in Zechariah 9.10. There seems to be little to no peace. Because you see, the, the first Adam, 
in Genesis 1.28, God's command to him was, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Subdue the earth means to grow your borders, expand your territory, move out the dominion and your, your kingdom from here. And Adam couldn't do it because he was struck by sin. So the second Adam, Christ, his kingdom will have no borders. His kingdom will have no end. His kingdom will have no unrest. His kingdom will have no peasants and kings. Everyone is an heir in the kingdom of Christ. But we're not there. Christ has already come and sacrificed. And the way that theologians paint it is that he inaugurated or he kicked off his spiritual reign as king at his first coming. So the Bible in uh, the New Testament paints a picture that, that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning until all enemies are under his foot. But it won't be until Christ returns that he establishes his second kingdom, his physical kingdom. And so my question for us this morning is this, is if we live in the the knowledge that Christ has come, but the realities that the world to come or the hope to come is not here, what do we do? How ought we live? And I think, I want to suggest that specifically we can pull two things from the life of Christ here in his final days. On his final Sunday on earth, I want to suggest that we can pull two things from that. The first thing I think that we can pull from Christ's life on Palm Sunday is that we will, as believers... Rejoice with Christ. And I do mean that one day in our future home, in the new heavens and new earth, when God has established his rule and all things are made right, there is no injustices, there is no sickness or illness, there is no more pain or tears, but I mean that there is joy accessible to us today in Christ. Think about this, that the the Old Testament saints were waiting on Christ to come. They didn't know the joy of what Christ was going to do for them. You and I have the ability to look back and see what God has done for us. There's joy in that. There should be joy in that. You think about that what Christ did for you and I is that at a moment, at a time, Everything we said and did and thought was totally infuriating to God. That we were, as Romans says, we were enemies of God, hostile in nature. That our very existence infuriated his wrath towards us because it was sinful. And that Christ was the judge who declared us guilty because of our sin and then walks out from behind the the judge's bench and says, put the cuffs on me. I'm receiving the punishment. He commanded death in Genesis because of sin, and he walks out and takes our place on the judgment seat. 
That's what he did for us. And there should be joy. There should be joy for a Christian in looking back in that. There should be joy in knowing, as the song says, when peace like a river attendeth my soul. Ephesians 2 says that Christ is our peace, that we have the ability as Christians today in a fallen and broken world to access the peace that transcends all understanding. And I don't mean it in like an ethereal way uh, or an an over-spiritual way, but what I do mean it is that for the Christian heart, there is rest in Christ here. The Psalms talks about um, uh, laying us down beside still waters, leading us in paths of righteousness, that there is real, tasteable, tangible, attainable joy in this life and the life to come. We see his disciples in, in Luke 37, you don't have to turn there, as they're walking in on the, the Roman road to uh, sort of usher in what they think is going to be Christ's kingdom, it says that, they were, that his disciples were singing and joyfully proclaiming the works that he had done. So we see even his best friends found joy in the presence of Christ. And so we have access to that as Christians. And it, it does, I don't pretend to think that all of us have joy all the time. I, I particularly am in the middle of a season where joy, joy feels hard to find. Joy, joy feels very fleeting personally. But it does mean that through Christ, if we press into him, that there is joy in his presence, there is joy in his sacrifice, that there is joy in the good thing that he has done for us. That's the first thing I think that we see from Christ's life here on his final Sunday. The second thing, and we're going to be close to wrapping up, The second thing is a much harder thing. Uh, It's a much more uncomfortable thing. If we are able to access joy in Christ, we will also suffer like Christ. It is the lot of every Christian's life to suffer. Romans chapter 8 tells us that if we are children of, of God, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs and will sit as heirs in his future kingdom and share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. And I, I, I'm looking now at the eyes in this room, knowing some of the things that you have gone through and that you are going through. Every moment of suffering that you experience, whether it be criticism, whether it be slander, whether it be cancer, whether it be uh, continual illness, whether it be death of a family member, whether it be miscarriage, whether it be bad news from the doctor, whether it be a, a father abandoning you, whatever you face 
in way of suffering. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that it is light and it is momentary compared to what, what awaits those who suffer well for Christ. So it is light and it is momentary, but it is completely meaningful. That every second of suffering that you or I endure in this life is producing, is generating, is manufacturing something in us that of course we can't see it now. Of course we don't know why we have miscarriages. We don't know why parents and loved ones get cancer. We can't understand it now, but the Bible says that we see now in a mirror dimly, but when we see him face to face, we will know completely that there's a moment coming, there's a time coming when the fog will be rolled back, when we will see Christ for who he is, and that 70, 80, 90 years of suffering on this earth will be totally meaningless compared to the glory and the presence of Christ when we stand with him. But I don't want us to pretend that the suffering that we have now, whether it feels little or it feels weighty, that it doesn't matter. It does. It matters totally and completely in the kingdom of God, that it's producing for us a future glory that we will enjoy for all of eternity. And if we are to rejoice with Christ, then we also are to suffer like him. And that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to wake up every day in pain. It's a hard thing to lose loved ones. But if we're going to rejoice well in Christ, let's suffer well with Christ as well. So I think there's a couple things that we can be sure of this morning. I think the first thing that we can be sure of is that God is not forgetful or somehow slow in keeping his promises. He first prophesied through Moses in Genesis 1,500 years before the Messiah actually came. God is not slow or forgetful, but he is steadfast and faithful. That he will be faithful to you, even if the suffering, even if the waiting feels prolonged, that God will be faithful. I think the second thing that we can pull is that you and I get to be a part of something much, much bigger, much, much larger than Myrtle Beach, much larger than Docks at Church. We get to be a part of thousands of years, millennia of God's story about rescuing his people. I don't want us to be people that when we stand before Christ, when we, we walk into that celestial city in the new heavens and new earth, when he looks at each of us and says, job well done, good and faithful servant. Come enjoy peace and rest forever. I don't want to be somebody that wishes I would have proclaimed more often 
King Jesus. I don't want to wish as I'm walking into the new heaven and new earth that I would have told more people, more friends, more family about the peace and rest that exists in a relationship with Christ. I don't want to be that person and I don't want us to be those people because we are a part of a story that's much, much bigger than just us right now. And whether you find yourself rejoicing right now or whether you find yourself suffering right now, it is only in Christ Jesus, our Savior, that we have the ability to sing the song that Horatio Spafford wrote. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Whether you find yourself hurting or joyful, it is only because and through Christ that we can encourage one another, that we can lift and spur one another on to say, brother, whatever your lot, it can be well with your soul. Sister, whatever your lot, it can be well with your soul. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, You are so kind to give us the gospel. You are so merciful to give us your son. Forgive us for the tendency to glaze over that. Forgive us for the tendency to take that lightly. Would you, in your people, this holy week in 2016, would you specifically and particularly move each of us to joy in you for what you've done on our behalf? Would you, Holy Spirit, produce the song in our hearts that sings, Those Sorrows Like Sea Billows Roll. It is well with our souls. We ask you for these things which we cannot do on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.